Hello and welcome to another episode of Let Us Talk. Today we have a very special guest for you guys because uh, we have the author of the book How to Create a Vegan World, A Pragmatic Approach and the founder or co-founder of ProVeg. Uh, please welcome Tobias Lehnert. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. So um, Tobias, um, you advocate for a pragmatic approach and our first question to you is, have you always been pragmatic? Uh, no, I, I started as a typical um, animal rights activist who was um, very angry and who didn't understand why people couldn't go vegan right away, even if I had needed 10 years to go vegan. <laughs> I couldn't understand why they couldn't do it immediately. So I know I was not always pragmatic. Yeah. So um, if you were not always pragmatic, what turned you pragmatic? <laughs> so I think, I mean, first maybe we should say what pragmatism is about. Uh, and I would say like, um, if you're pragmatic, you're not going to look at what works. You're going to look at effectiveness. You're going to look at um, yeah, what works in the context of the time and of the place you're in. And I oppose that to being <clears throat> idealistic, idealistic in a narrow sense. Mm -hmm. um, and that would be about uh, you want people to do right away whatever you want them to do for the reasons that you have. So, for instance, you would say to people, go vegan for the animals, uh, and you have to do it now, and we have to have the vegan, the vegan world tomorrow, etc. So that's a bit of a, of a depiction of a distinction. And um, so I do think that um, people automatically will become more pragmatic if they think about reaching more people. So if you, as long as you think like, look, I'm going to, talk to my uncle and I'm going to maybe do some street activism. You can afford to be very idealistic. But as soon as you are, for instance, you want to reach a local government or your university um, department or some other institution or business, um, then you have to become more pragmatic because those other players, those other stakeholders will never spread the message in the way that you want them to spread it ideally right they will not do what you would want to do them ideally so they will do something else they will they will talk uh, about meat reduction or they will talk about whatever suits them um, if we would ask them like you have to talk to your constituents to all university students about to all your people in your local community you have to talk about go vegan for the animals they may not want to do that because it's too radical a message, it's too alienating, it's too confrontational, so they will maybe talk about reduce your meat consumption for the environment. And so if that is what is interesting to them, that is the way we should talk about it to them. So you think that a pragmatic approach is needed to reach more people. Uh, some animal advocates might think that this is like watering down the message. What would be your response to them? Yeah, so so maybe, maybe this is also a good way to... Um, distinguish um, pragmatism from idealism like if you're an idealist and also if you're an abolitionist in the narrow sense you would have an idea of the ideal message that is not watered down mm -hmm. and you would say or you would think like we have to communicate in a certain way it, the way we communicate has to meet certain criteria certain abolitionist criteria certain criteria that are not watered down and I would say look the <laughs> The way you communicate, what you communicate doesn't really matter that much. What matters is what happens with that communication. So the only value of a message is how it arrives with people, what people do with it. So I see animal rights people not caring about the effect they 
they just care about that their message is the right one that is orthodox and is in line with our ideology and so they might say like meat is murder and i believe that meat is murder and therefore i'm going to speak my truth i'm going to say that meat is murder but if you don't care about how that message arrives how are you helping animals so something i i always take as a test is like just imagine that you are a chicken in a cage and you're look, looking at the movement and you're looking at activists what would you want them to do you would not want them to shout for you necessarily, you would only want them to do to shout for you if you knew that was getting you out of that cage. You want the activists to do what gets you out of that cage forever. Um, so that is what you have to look at. And so if the message sounds like watering down, mm -hmm. that is no problem as long as the result is good. And I'm not saying we can always know the result, but that is at least what our attention should be on, on the results. Yeah, so this this pragmatism is a very necessary strategy right now with what you're seeing with other activists, for example. Um, are there any examples of this pragmatism already working in some way? Could you name any examples? Well, so for, for instance, um, the idea of any, any, any message that is not talking about veganism, but is talking about reduction or is talking about nudging or whatever, all those techniques, uh, they're all examples of pragmatism, of being pragmatic, of not having an idealistic ask, not asking what you ideally want to. So, for instance, if you have a campaign, for instance, an, an organization in the U.S. called Greener by Default, um, which uh, talks about, look, let's make the default option the vegan one. And there can be meat, uh, but the default option, the easiest option, the cheapest option maybe is vegan. So... That is pragmatic in the sense that maybe this works better than introducing a vegan option where a lot of people will like scream and, 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 and shout and say like, I want my meat and you have to, to get rid of this system, etc. So if you have um, a vegan option as a default and people can still have meat even they have to, if they have to uh, make a bit, little bit more effort for mm -hmm. it or pay a little bit more for it, there might be a chance that um, people will complain less and that in the end, the result is better. So not ideal. I would rather see no meat at all, but I want to see it in a sustainable way so that it keeps working, you know, and it convinces people. So, so that's an, yeah. an example. These are incremental changes on the way to transformative change. What do you yeah, think? yeah. So, I mean, you, you never have to confuse um, what somebody who's a pr pragmatist, you never have to confuse what they want to do and what they think is the best idea to go forward, you can't confuse it with their end goal. Mm -hmm. The end goal of most people, including pragmatist activists, pragmatist vegans, um, if such a category exists, but um, is abolition, just like an abolitionist wants abolition, right? So there, there is a very much a confusion. I mean, abolitionism is something that is described normally, I mean, like, like, like it says, to describe an end goal. Right, mm -hmm. but non-abolitionist vegans—I mean, who don't use the abolitionist vocabulary and messaging—they're abolitionists as well, in the sense that they want to abolish the animal industry. They as just an end goal. differ in strategy. In strategy and in messaging, mm -hmm. yes. But so you have to wonder, like the word abolitionism, what is it about? Is it about results? It should be about results. It should not be about messaging. Mm -hmm. right? yeah. So actually, there is no distinction between pragmatism and abolitionism, but no, the results. 
Yeah. But uh, one between pragmatism and maybe idealism and ways of methodology. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, just, just always look at what you're after, what the end goal is. And the end goal is the same for everybody. I mean, except for people who do believe that we can have humane meat, etc. But um, in generally, vegans just agree that we want abolition. And some vegans will do it in a de-idealistic way. And some will communicate in a more pragmatic way. Could a pragmatic approach also work on individual level yeah yeah well so i would i would say first of all um maybe taking a step back but but for me pragmatism is includes being flexible in your approach so you would do what works and one of the approaches that may work might be a very in your face uh, abolitionist approach or messaging so you could say for instance like for this person i can see that Moderation for this person will not help. I know this person. This is like an all or nothing person. This is a person who like, if they want to stop smoking, they can't or stop drinking alcohol. They can't do it in moderation. They have to just cut. Uh, there you can say like, look, blah, blah, blah. It's, or to philosophy students who are very rational or, or hopefully very rational, uh, mm -hmm. you can say like, look, it is wrong to end a person's life. And so no amount of meat is... is, is um, um, justified, etc. So, but you have to like kind of try to imagine what imagine or try to get to know or, or the person or try to understand what what will work for them, what arguments will work for them, and what speed will work for them, uh, what food will work for, will work for them. So, try to be flexible in that. And uh, and the, the typical abolitionist activist, abolitionist in a narrow sense, um, will always use the same approach because that's the approach that they that is for them the only morally right approach. And that's what I object to, to think that there is only one morally right approach to or one morally right way to communicate. I think the morally right way to communicate is the way that you think works best for me. So effectiveness and rightness are almost synonymous for me. And the effectiveness also really depends on the individual with whom you talk, basically. Yeah. And... Um... Yeah, one idea was reducitarianism, uh, like reducing the amount of animal products people eat. And some people say, like, um, for example, the clinical psychologist Casey Taft, mm -hmm. he argues that, um, yeah, it's only about behavior, but not really addressing the internal shift or the, like, the attitude change necessary to become vegan. Um, what do you think about these kind of arguments? It's good to distinguish uh, behavior change and attitude change. Mm -hmm. And so you could have, for instance, a person who changes their behavior, who stops eating animals for, for instance, health reasons or because their girlfriend or boyfriend is vegan. But the attitude change hasn't happened. They haven't understood that animals can suffer and are important, can be exploited. And there may be the danger that somewhere else they're going to do some, some bad behavior towards animals because the attitude has change and then much more common actually is the other way around where there's an attitude shift people do realize i shouldn't eat animals animals suffer but they still continue to eat animals right so those are two different things um, now to your question uh, as whether uh, there might be a behavior shift without an attitude shift it's definitely possible but uh, my theory is that as soon as you have a behavior shift as soon as you have a person who starts eating differently for health reasons, for social reasons, whatever, um, it's easy to see that um, for them, uh, they would become more open-minded to hear the arguments about animal rights, etc., because they now realize there's nothing to lose. They already have experienced the alternative, 
right? So as soon as you know, look, there's an alternative, you can become more open-minded. And as long as you fear, like, look, there is something that I don't want to do, there's something that I don't want to know. I always give the example of, of actually um, plants, for instance. I mean, there's a lot of meat eaters who make fun of us and who say, like, well, what do you do with the plants? Don't, doesn't the carrot feel pain, etc.? So... There make, was a study that said that tomatoes scream. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, there are studies yeah. and I feel that I don't want to know what's in these studies. As long as I'm using trees, as long as I'm eating vegetables, I rather, I rather not know. Um, so I haven't actually read anything any, any time in depth because I don't want to know. Because if I know that trees feel pain, um, I've got an extra problem. <laughs> <laughs> or for instance, my smartphone, it's not like a Fairphone or something. I know there's stuff happening with bad stuff with uh, the ingredients or, or the, the, the components of the phone. But it's hard for me to read about the mines in Africa or something where they get the cobalt or whatever. It's not something I, I, I'm really keen to read just because I'm using that phone. But as soon as I have a Fairphone or whatever... Or, some, or a second-hand one. Yeah, then I... I, I might say like, oh, this is interesting and <laughs> I'm glad I'm not participating in that, you know. True. So. Uh, so in your book and in many of your talks, you mentioned that uh, veganism can become sort of a dogmatic ideology, um, like carnism, but carnism is obviously, of course, worse because it mm. does more harm. If we don't encourage vegans to ask questions and do their own research um, instead of like repeating the same points all over again, like sometimes when I do activism, I find myself repeating the same the same arguments and then i think like oh but i'm not like i didn't read the study myself or like um so yeah what what do you think the dangers of this are and what's the what's the biggest dogma that's going around in the veganism right now the biggest dogma is maybe in, in the idea of like we should always talk about veganism and always talk about the animals um in our messaging you know so that is i think dogma if you believe that there's only one way to talk uh, about veganism that is dogma, and um, I think that prevents us from improving our message and, and reiterating and, 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 and developing things that work better than other things. And we have to keep improving because there's really a huge challenge still ahead of us. I really like the example that you gave of what would the chicken um, yeah, in the cage, how would they want you to communicate? Mm, yeah. I really like that question. I think that's always a good one when doing outreach yourself. Or talking to other people, okay, what would the chicken want? Yeah, yeah, and, and they would especially not want us to fight among each other. <laughs> they would, um, if they would see us fighting, they would go like, oh my god, please. You know? um, so that's the first thing we have to avoid, I think, uh, that we are infighting and, and differing um, on all kind of like side issues and, and smaller things and strategies and, and, and mm -hmm. just try to do our best. We just have to try uh, to trust the other people who differ with us in strategy and just try to trust that they have or know that they have the same ambitions and the same aspirations and, and the same end goal. Yeah, that's really important. So now um, we are talking about um, societal change and um, yeah, you mentioned or you give a, even a, reco a reading recommendation at the end of your book. It's uh, Jonathan Haidt's book, uh, The Righteous Mind. And uh, in this book, Haidt states that moral judgment are made intuitively rather than rationally. So we make our decisions very quickly and based on different intuitions. And he also links that to um, political judgments. And so far, I have the impression that veganism is really quite a left-leaning movement. And we talk a lot about harm 
of the animals or about oppression, but we do not really talk about the conservative moral foundations and how can we address these foundations as a vegan movement? Yeah, yeah, they're good questions. I think the general lesson from, from hate's moral foundations theory, which is open to, to some criticism, as I understand, um, but the, the main lesson there is different people have different ways to anchor their moral judgments mm -hmm. um, there's different values under it like for the one it's injustice for the other one it's um, it's loyalty for instance I mean a very clear example is let's say you're in a in a car accident with a friend who was the driver and uh, you know it's the it's your friend's fault and the police interrogates you um, yeah will you be um, emphasizing the truth and fairness or will you be loyal to your friend and so yeah it is I think clear that conservative people sometimes have different values and the question is to what extent and how can we cater to them. I do think that the vegan movement is is so far left that we are turning off people on the more conservative end of the spectrum with also with associating veganism with all kinds of intersectional issues and um, for instance another another example is that the climate movement has very clearly taking the side of Palestine, which turns off other people who don't share that opinion. Mm -hmm. So the question is, is it smart to associate something you fight for with a lot of other causes? The movements who have won in the history are the movements who have stuck to their own core business. It becomes um, confusing if you on, a, on the one hand have climate messages and then on the other hand you have Palestine messages, mm -hmm. etc. So it's confusing to see what is this mm -hmm. organization or this, this march about. And secondly, um, of course, you're going to turn off the people from climate if they don't agree with your Israel-Palestine opinion, right? So yeah. um, I was I was recently talking with some people who want to um, uh, work on the Belgian party for the animals, and they told me they have a very, very long political program. And every time somebody asks, like, what do you think of this? I, have, I want to know as a voter, what do you think on this topic? Uh, every time somebody asks mm. that, they will draft some opinion about it. Yeah. But you open yourself up to a lot of discussions, to a lot of work, mm -hmm. to um, a lot of turning off people. Yeah. Um, so I think it's smarter in some cases, like if you're a small political animal party, to say, this is our core business, please trust mm. that we are people who yeah. want the good for everybody and we're not going to express an opinion on this. As much as we care about it, mm -hmm. we're not going to express an opinion and we're going to stick to our no, I think I, I, agree, I agree with that because this is this issue is I think why Extinction Rebellion isn't doing really well at the moment because they're they're just mixing everything together mm -hmm. and it's just it leads to an unclarity and it's just, yeah I don't think it's effective. Yeah, I mean every every single topic that you include as a topic of discussion is a potential cause for more fighting, for more infighting, for more differing among yourselves, etc. And we have a culture, or we are beings that have a lot of problems with disagreement you know we can if you say israel and i say palestine if you say COVID is a hoax and i say it's, it's not, not then we have a problem mm -hmm. yeah. maybe maybe sometimes not maybe we can agree like you say yes abortion i say no abortion maybe on that we can agree but on another thing we can't mm -hmm. uh, but there will inevitably be things that are so sensitive um, and that we feel so strongly about that we will fight and we will stop collaborating because we differ. And so as long as it's like that, as long as we can't learn how to disagree, 
and how to have different opinions, then sometimes it's better to have no opinions or to, or to avoid avoid the discussions, I think, if we want to achieve something. Yeah, I think it's like the amount of vegans is already so small. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We don't, we shouldn't be excluding like that amount of people from even participating. Exactly. Yeah. I feel like. Yeah. I mean, you can, you can argue, of course, that like a person who is on the extreme right. I mean, yeah. even then, I mean, you could say like, they're still welcome because we hope to influence them into a better direction, but at least they cannot wear t-shirts like that when they're participating in something or whatever. Yeah. Um, I mean, I always think that like the people that we really whose opinions we really despise, I still think it's better to be in touch with them than to isolate them because how are they going to change if we isolate them? You know, you, you can't, you can't alienate somebody into joining your team. Um, you know, yeah. so, so you have to remain in touch and, and hope that because of the contact, there will be, hopefully you will not change, but they will change. Um, Otherwise, the only option is to let them be and let them be with their own crowd mm -hmm. and let them reinforce each other and be even further away from them. So, yeah, because yeah. different activist organizations have different rules around this. Like if you look at Anonymous for the Voiceless, they don't allow anyone who's not vegan to participate mm -hmm. in their activism. Yeah. Whereas I think the animal safe movement does, or at least people, I don't know what exactly the rule is, maybe people who are transitioning still or like going in that direction or wanting to go that direction. Like, I found myself thinking about that, and it's like, could someone who is not vegan themselves or wanting to be vegan themselves be an effective activist in outreach settings? Yeah, there's a lot of things to say on it. I mean, first of all, if you if you would talk about, like, for instance, Anonymous for the Voiceless, there it's always about the animals. And when you think about the animals, you will mostly be vegan. Um, our messages, they will always sound like as if we have this vegan agenda, which we do which we do have. If we talk about the environment, about animal welfare, about health, they will always say, yeah, but you want the whole world to go vegan, and, and, and which is true. Um, Ricky Gervais was, was, um, was an example that people were angry with because he wasn't vegan, but apparently he's been vegan for a couple of years, but didn't come out for being a yeah. vegan. So that maybe was on purpose, and that maybe was strategic, you know, like, like as long as he said he wasn't, he didn't say he was vegan, maybe more people were less listening to, to him. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe now he's creating more polarization because he said he's vegan. I mean, I'm glad he's vegan, I'm glad he said it, but there might be downsides to it. Yeah. It's funny that you asked this question, because I did animal advocacy before I came, became vegan, actually. Mm. I had my petition at the University of Twente for more vegan food before I, yeah. I was fully vegan. I didn't uh, know that. And oh. I also was at Anonymous for the Voiceless before I was fully vegan. Oh, nobody knew that. And no, no, then. was also <laughs> back in Amsterdam. Yeah. But it's um, actually something that turned me vegan, because I was surrounded mm -hmm. by vegans. And exactly. Then I like, um, yeah. Uh, yeah. That's a really good point. So um, yeah. I, I would, think that works for a lot of people. If you have the social environment, yeah. let the people join the activism and they will become vegan. Don't exclude them beforehand. Yeah. It's very obvious. The yeah. Answer. yeah, and it's so obvious that we need we need a much bigger movement. And if we're going to only rely on the 1% of vegans, we're going to just remain a very small movement. So mm -hmm. I think one of the best examples of big mobilized movement is, is the Party for the Animals in the Netherlands mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're not all vegan by a long shot. Uh, but they have thousands and thousands of members and they represented at every any level of government. No one in the world has done that. Um, I think it's a very successful movement. Um, and and we have to, I think we have to accept and invite every everyone who looks in the same direction. And the Vegan Society in 1944 was actually founded with the idea of uh, anybody can join, mm. no matter how they eat. 
if they agree with the direction. You know, and there's many people who say like, like yeah, I agree we should abolish um, at least intensive factory farming, but maybe farming in, animal farming in general, but they're not yet vegan. I don't think it's a good idea to exclude them because they don't practice what they preach mm -hmm. yet, mm -hmm. because they might do very interesting yeah. things for this yeah. movement. I think there's, I mean, we know this from research, that there's many more people who would agree with any uh, law proposition to abandon, to, to abolish slaughterhouses that, that there are vegans. There's a couple of dozens of percentages agreeing with the idea of abolishing slaughterhouses, but there's only 1% vegans. So I think this is a bit like this, like, like I wouldn't want to be, let's say like, like taxes. I wouldn't want to be the only sucker who pays more taxes if nobody else does. Mm. But as soon as government says like, we're going to increase the taxes for, for, uh, uh, developing countries, you know, we're gonna um, increase them for everybody. Then I would say, look, I'm I go along, I, I'll pay gladly, uh, but I'm not gonna be the only one. So this is like like many people might say, look, if you want to abolish meat, and I can't eat anymore, I'm not gonna complain. I'm not gonna like try to sabotage you. I'm not gonna protest. I'll go along. I can't do it voluntarily right now, mm. but I'll go along when when I have to. I just looked up the survey that was done last year about how, how many Dutch people uh, think that factory farming should be abolished or intensive farming. And it was 40% that said yes and 20% that are sort of in agreement. So mm -hmm. that's like 60% 60%. who basically. Yeah. I mean, that's about gone. factory farming, not factory. farming in general, right? It's the bio industry. Yeah. 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 I mean, you, you could compare it with the number sure. of people who eat meat from the bio industry. <laughs> and it's a huge percentage yeah. difference. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Still, it always comes back to talking about individuals. I think, especially the vegan movement, is so exclusive about people who are not one hundred percent vegan, or like also people themselves. I also ask people for my own research. What do you think about animal rights? Or like, should animals have rights? Something like that. And people said, hey, I would like to say that animals have rights, but I eat meat myself, so I do not dare yeah. to say that." Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I mean, also you have it a lot about the climate movement that yeah. people. You cannot be in favor of um, climate measures if you go yourself on vacation by a plane. That people are so um, obsessed with purity and consistency that, yeah, yeah, there's no separation anymore between the moral individual behavior and the political stance you can take. And how, how can we escape that? So this is to some extent also the responsibility of, of, of vegans um, to not accuse them of hypocrisy when they do that, maybe, mm -hmm. so that they feel safer to say, like, look, I'm sorry, I, I eat it, but I'm actually not liking it, or actually I would be in favor of this or that. So I think one solution would be, I mean, we do get, ac uh, get accused by meat eaters of being inconsistent or they look for inconsistencies. Maybe they would do less of that if we ourselves did not pretend to be consistent. You know, if we said like, look, we're just doing the best that we can, and we realize that veganism is some... It's some kind of like line, it's a good line, but to some extent it's also an arbitrary line, you know, um, and we could do more, and we could do more in other fields. If we admitted that, that we're not perfect, that we're not meeting some kind of like really golden standard or something, um, then I think that other people might be more forgiving towards us, might not want to look for those exceptions in us, and might also maybe um, be more appreciative of, of, of like mistakes and might be more lenient to, to try something themselves.
about talking to others, I would like to link back to uh, more foundation theory uh, that we um, discussed earlier, because also I think we always use the same arguments, again, um, empathy um, or oppression, second term that I hear very often, but um, something that might attract also another group of people is like the emotion of disgust mm -hmm. that a lot of people have, yeah. and I think that's currently very much underexploited by our movement. Do you have any ideas how to make use of disgusts in an effective advocacy? Manner. Yeah, um, I had the idea of like um, trying to spread the idea that when organizations, undercover organizations go into factory farms and, and slaughterhouses and things like that, um, that rather than, or aside from documenting instances of cruelty, uh, they could also document instances of stuff that is disgusting. Like shit. <laughs> yeah. yeah like, like the whatever they see that is disgusting yeah. make a nice compilation of that yeah. and spread that through the media etc mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. we, we, we do know that, that the, the most um, um, some of the most effective mm -hmm. uh, um, things happen because of um, the idea of like this is this too disgusting to eat or this is too disgusting to feed to our children there was some mm -hmm. investigation I think in the, in, the, in the US sometime and it was about meat that went to school lunches and there were hundreds of thousands of tons of meat were recalled um, which is a lot of economical damage and as far as it's true um, I think that that those are arguments that that could be could be useful sometimes I see the vegan movement exaggerate them I think that non-vegans already use disgust when describing like vegan products exactly when it comes to like chemicals oh no yeah. or, like this is sludge or whatever like they yeah so they use they use that same emotion but if we could like like um, mirror it back yeah, to them, yeah. that could be, yeah, that could be effective. Yeah, I think one very obvious source of disgust is also just the sheer amount of blood happening in slaughter. Of course. Yes. I think a slaughterhouse is just a disgusting horror place and that's also for non-vegans. Yeah. No one likes to be there, even the people who work there don't like to be there. Yeah, and Especially then there's, those. <laughs> there's of course a matter of moral disgust, of course, if you show yeah. images, gruesome images, there's a moral disgust reaction. You know, you don't want to see that. And, but that's exactly the pictures that, yeah, people try to avoid. Um, and maybe it's not always a good idea to show them either for us. But um, they, those are the pictures that, that people are um, protected from, basically. They, 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 they're not seeing those images very often, and they will try to avoid seeing them because they are morally or otherwise disgusting. So we're speaking to you as a couple of students here, basically. This is a... a... A podcast made by students for students mostly but for everyone and we were wondering like what you think is the most effective that we can do as students right now yeah so I do think that that there is a possibility to uh, push for institutional change at university with plan-based universities that campaign for instance or with mm -hmm. uh, veggie challenge teams um, stuff like that um, I think that with your organization a vegan student association you can um, also, I, I think it's important to really communicate in a way there that um, brings together many more people than just the vegans at your organization. So, so we could talk about environment and animal welfare. It's like not just have vegan publics, but but like yeah, bring the people together um, who are in some way interested in one of these topics, um, and, and so create a bigger group and emphasize also that they don't have to be vegan to be an activist or to do something or to be an ally or whatever. I mean, I've seen examples of, of um, or universities where the cafeteria has been really transformed into something not necessarily vegan, but with a lot 
more options and and there's a lot to play with there's a lot to to explore and see like can we abolish this option can we make this more expensive and sit together with the people who decide on these things i don't know who it is here um but but if you if you talk about these things reasonably and rationally i think there's a lot possible and i think that universities can be some kind of driving force behind the change because students are progressive and they they are breeding the next generation of professionals mm -hmm. and, and, and so it's it's quite important yeah. to be active here yeah so we are starting up a plant-based universities campaign okay, here great. and at multiple universities around the netherlands yeah and we will in a couple of months we will launch nationally all right at the same time so that's yeah. a very exciting uh, development that we're doing yeah Great. Also, we're, of course, open to non-vegans. We do a yes. lot of um, stuff with other associations. Yeah. When I, when I started an organization in Belgium, um, initially, the first few months, we started as an organization that was going to attack every injustice. <laughs> and we soon found out that it's like we weren't enough people for that. And then we stuck to just animals and, and veganism. Um, it's just a matter of, like, priorities. With the limited resources, you're going to decide we're about animals. And we're going to help them. And there's all the more reason to do so and, and to have that focus because animals are so ignored. They're so massively mistreated and they're so ignored. You know, there's so little means to them. So we are very justified to say, like, our focus is going to be animals. In the U.S., the number that I have in my head and probably hasn't changed is 1.5% of donations goes to animal causes. Mm. And of those 1.5%, 99% goes to cats and dogs and shelters. So, so it's, it's basically one percent of one percent. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. And yes, it's a lot more farm animals in the world than a companion. Yeah. Animals. Yeah. So these are U.S. numbers. So they apply to ten billion animals per year. So they get zero point zero one five percent of donations. Um, so that's all the more reason, like I said, to to feel justified that some people can say this is our priority. With our VSA, or like with all VSAs, basically we launched a fundraiser for ProVeg for because it's giving season now. And yeah, do you think that uh, donations are like an underestimated way of doing good? I feel like there's not so much talk about donations. Yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, some people don't have time, but they do have they do have some money. Uh, of course, in, in the case of students, uh, it's more a matter of they have some time and energy, but they don't have money. Um, <laughs> so that's maybe why you don't hear so much about it. Yes. Uh, even though, of course, yeah, I guess the average student here would be in a very privileged position compared to the general world population, right. you know. So there's always something that you can't share. But I do understand that it's, that it's less comfortable or, than, than when you're maybe 45 years old and you have an income, etc. Yeah, besides of our studies, we also perform different um, uh, yeah, sorts of activism. Some of us do Keeps of Truth, uh, um, Safe Squares, we do with We the Free, we have the um, a video challenge with VR glasses. Yeah, what's your um, stance on these kind of outreach actions? I always give the advice like to see if it can be combined with something in terms of food. Mm -hmm. You know, like if you can give a voucher, a coupon to go to, like, a, uh, to the people and say, like, look, you can... Um, I have a burger there with a 20% discount or something, like maybe work together with a local business, um, because then you combine the arguments and the behavior change. So, um, yeah. With, with, with the free, we do give out uh, food yeah. as a prize after they watch the video. Yeah, so, okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I also think that, um, I mean, some people uh, don't have time or the capacity to do more 
complicated work than standing in the street. So um, I think it might be very useful for certain people or, or might be the only thing that they have the opportunity to do. Uh, it can also be a very good uh, way to practice um, your skills mm -hmm. of talking to people. It's definitely a good way to get to recruit more people into the movement and more volunteers because um, it is, um, I think it's, it stimulates people to, or it, it, it is, um, yeah, people get motivated to do that. And, and when they see other people doing that, they might say, I want to join this movement. And then from there, they can move to more effective or different uh, interventions or, or whatever. Um, I think that, that like, yeah, obviously, and, and this, this is what we see within effective altruism as well, the, the most important um, decision you can make is your career decision in terms of doing good. So um, the people listening and, and you as well, think about um yeah what you can do right now for your future career to make that a more effective career for animals and also make a decision maybe for some of you like like make a decision just to that, that is your thing that you will go to this that you will go for this for the animals you know like i mean there's many causes and, and there's many worthwhile causes but like i said um there's many uh i mean the the, the damage horror that we do to animals is, is incredibly big. Mm -hmm. There's very little attention going to it, very little money go, going to it. So it's really good if some people decide like, okay, this is my thing. I'm going to devote at least five or 10 years of my life to it. And I'm going to choose a career path that can help them in no matter what field they are in. And some fields are more obvious than others. Um, but to say that like, yeah, um, this is going to be where I'm going to make my mark. My, my difference. Well, I just started thinking about m myself personally. Yeah. <laughs> like, because, yeah, because I'm currently in my third year of university. And people ask me the question, like, what do you want to do later? And the more I think about it, the more I want to do activism full time mm -hmm. and dedicate my life to this. Um, I don't know if it would be sustainable or if I have the skills to be in a, in a paid position for certain organizations or not. So it's just something that I that I think about uh, currently. Yeah, yeah, um, it's good that you're thinking about it, and um, there's always the risk left. But like, I mean, you're very motivated now, but um, if you don't find anything, and then maybe some boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever comes along and they want a baby with you or whatever, and there's all kind of things may happen, and then you get off track, and then maybe we meet in if I'm alive in thirty years, and we meet in and you have a normal career and you have a family and you may be donating 50 euros a year or something, but that's it. And that's a risk. And that, that will happen to many people who are motivated right now, who will just like slide off to, I, I have seen so many people like, like I, I found an organization 25 years ago and there's people who were with me back then, um, who now are, I mean, they're good people, but, and they're still vegan in the best case, um, sometimes not. Um, or they have made children who are they're, they're not they're not uh, uh, they're not bringing up as vegans. So so a lot of the times people just get sidetracked. Um, life happens basically. Mm -hmm. So there should be like a bit of a way to guard against that. You know, like to to maybe make a commitment to yourself. Like like say like yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna really watch out that I stay on track. Uh, and, and and that even if I can't find a job. Uh, I'm still going to do this or that. I'm going to commit to 10% donation or I'm going to commit to 
to mm. keep trying to find something or if whatever some pledge maybe <laughs> to like I will be on the side of the animals and I will yeah do my best for for the rest of my life now you made your career out of activism uh, how, how the, did that journey how, how did you experience that yeah yeah it was um it's it was mainly dedication and motivation and I also understand that this is something you can't control like uh, yeah cannot push a button to increase your motivation not easily i mean you can do some things but basically it's like i mean i always say like like to people in my talks who are activists like be grateful for the fact that like if you have if you have a, a mission in life if you feel you have this fire in life or something be grateful for that because most people don't have that and it's something that's given to you from i don't know where but you can't force it you cannot say like look from now on i'm going to have a mission it's just something that comes mm -hmm. like belief or like religion or whatever you know it arrives with you and um yeah so so i was lucky in a way to have that even if it doesn't always make life more um easy and sometimes it does uh and so i followed that um and i got um yeah i i, I had to go through um i think maybe five years of normal jobs um, it, this was 2020, so there weren't, I mean, today there's so many more possibilities in terms of funding and, and support and entrepreneurship, etc. But back then, there was nothing um, in this field, so you had to create it yourself. And so for five years, I did the normal job, and uh, on that job, I did a lot of stuff for my organization without the people of my job knowing. Uh, you know, I spent... <laughs> Two thirds, three quarters of my time on my nonprofit while I was paid for by the job. Uh, so that's also a possibility. You can find a job that, like, you don't have to do much. I got the possibility to um, to devote myself full time to this organization. Then I got out of the organization because I was feeling I wasn't the best person to lead an organization or to lead to manage a team. And then I uh, became more self-employed, uh, writing and speaking and consulting. And uh, yeah, that's that's where I'm now. So it's been 25 years now. Yeah, that's a little bit about uh, yeah what we can do and where we see our future careers maybe. And talking about the future, well, what is your vision for the future actually? Are you optimistic? Um, well, my best days, I'm optimistic. Um, I I do think that we will we will get there. We will get to a phase where we will look back and wonder like. Or was it possible that we did what we did? Just like we are, right? We're still writing essays and and PhDs about how was the Holocaust possible? Mm. You know, how could these people do what they did, knowing what happened? The same way we will say, like, okay, people knew that animals felt pain. They knew that they were all locked up in these um, big stables by the millions. How did they let it happen? I think that's what we will ask in the future. Maybe you will live to see it. Um, yeah, the end of it's, it's quite possible. I think that that at some point it's going to be very fast, mm. and we're going to wonder like, how was it possible? Um, mm. Why was it so obvious before? Yeah. yeah. I think ChatGPT said like twenty seventy five. Yeah, twenty seventy five. Yeah, about, it sounds like it could be possible. About um, yeah, the yeah, reaching veganville. <laughs> um, what do you think of the role of cultivated meat? Precision fermentation or biomass fermentation, and also plant-based proteins in uh, this field. Yeah, I think they're all. I mean, the, the new technologies are very important in the sense that they can get 
they can uh, bring about uh, a technological revolution that can induce a moral revolution. So first technological and then a moral. Uh, I think that is very well possible. So we should invest. We should should be open to the possibilities of these technologies, even though they might fail, and even though we might not need them in the end. I don't know, but but at this point, it seems like for me, it seems like a good idea to invest in them. Um, yeah, I, I think that they might create some shift in people in the sense that like people would say that, okay, this is real meat. For me, this is now real meat. It comes from animals, it's animal cells. Um, yeah, it's real. Um, so hopefully something like that. I hope that it will happen that, uh, yeah, I like the idea that technology comes and it changes our no whole notion of meat. That mm -hmm. one point we will say, hey, we have meat, and then that's maybe cell-based or um, uh, plant-based or whatever. Yeah. And then we will look back at slaughter-based meat and be like, oh, mm -hmm. what is that? Like, that gets the extra name. Like, or, for example, milk. If we say milk, we don't even think of mother's milk. We think of dairy. And uh, maybe then uh, precision fermentation-based milk will be the standard milk. And then we will talk about cow-based milk. Yeah, yeah it will become, like, primitive yeah. in yeah. a way. Yeah, primitive and shameful. And, mm. Yeah. Talking about uh, ChatGPT, um, artificial intelligence is like a yeah, very penetrating technology right now that is almost everywhere and everybody's talking about it. And it's yeah, basically has the potential to revolutionize the way we live. But also algorithms are yeah, biased based on yeah, the bias we, biases we have in our current society, such as classism, racism, sexism, but also speciesism. Yeah, do you think that this might be a problem? There definitely can be a problem, although I'm... I'm quite surprised at how progressive ChatGPT is at this moment, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's certainly biased and, and our biases are in there, mm -hmm. but ask your general people on the right side of the spectrum what they think of ChatGPT and they will think it's a very woke. <laughs> very woke. It will be definitely be great and we have to try to influence people to, um, to try to put some anti-speciesist Uh, stuff in there, which will make it even more woke <laughs> in terms in the eyes of some people. But um, but yeah, to, to it, it is a chance um, to form the language of, of of this technology in in the direction of of it taking into account all sentient beings, basically. Yeah, we we had it uh, in an activist group that someone like I think it was Apple who actually. Um, automatically labels pictures and she was um, an activist at a pig safe and she made a photo took a photo of the pig and then the um, AI labeled this as dinner or fine dining really? yeah. yeah yeah there was uh, I don't know if you saw it somebody who posted uh, I reposted it um, something like um, tell me how to force feed a duck and uh, and the chat uh, GPT says I will certainly not tell you that because uh, it's cool And then you ask, give me a foie gras recipe. <laughs> It has no problem offering you a foie gras, foie gras recipe. So, uh, yeah, this whole, this whole contradiction. Yeah. It's just very human. So, yeah. Um, thank you for being here, Tobias. We have a final question for you. It's kind of related to effective communication, what we talked about before. Um, what's your advice for celebrating Christmas with non-vegan family and friends? Um get close to somebody who has COVID so you can avoid going to... <laughs> Or pretend to be sick. <laughs> I mean, that's one option. Um, yeah, I mean, you can try to avoid going there if you really hate it, but of course that's a missed opportunity for having some discussions. Um, I think that um, you could try and 
I think after all these years, now we're going to have the first vegan Christmas in my girlfriend's family. My 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 family is always vegan Christmas, but my girlfriend's my family now is going to it's going to be vegan for everybody now too. It used to be only for us, me and my girlfriend, but not for the rest of the family. That's going to be for everybody. So so people might be open to do it. The people who are cooking. Um, so it's worth discussing. Um, you could also, um, yeah, just of course bring your own stuff and um, make it look good. Make sure it looks good, and not discuss it and and have just a peaceful um, experience. Uh, so this, I think, it really depends on what person you are and what you're in the mood for. If you want to stir up some some shit at Christmas, <laughs> it's possible. But uh, it's also possible to just uh, that night ignore it. I do understand it's. I mean, I find something very disturbing in the fact that, like, you're celebrating. There's a celebration, and at the same time, there's this mass cruelty on a scale, like, even bigger than on the other days. So that's very disturbing to me. So I really often want to say something about that. That's also something you could do. If you feel you have to say something about it, you might do something else um, rather than raise it at Christmas. Um, mm -hmm. But um, I, I don't think there's, there's any one answer for, for everybody. Mm -hmm. um, you have to kind of feel what you're, what you're in the mood for, I think. I feel like family is always the end boss. Like I know so many activists who do street outreach, but for them always family is um, <laughs> the hardest. Now you say you're um, doing it for even professionally and your first advice about talking to our families was getting COVID. <laughs> it seems like such a difficult um, topic um, to um, yeah um, reach the family with this. Um, of course, also, yeah, you have to find a balance between like talking about a very uncomfortable topic and also, yeah, Yeah, leaving it aside, but uh, feeling the yeah discomfort because of all the cruelty and mm -hmm. is there like a common ground? Is there like a like a middle way in which we can talk about it and like in a very respectful way that it works? <laughs> yeah, I mean it also depends on like what kind of family members you have. Some people have progressive, open-minded family members who might have a good conversation about this, and other people have like this this old conservative uncle who just can't say anything useful about it. You know, and, and, and there you have to wonder, like, is this a good use of my time and energy? Mm. I don't think so. But, I mean, there's this, with family, there's this contrast between, on the one hand, they have a big impact on your life and your well-being if they're close to you. But on the other hand, in the larger picture, it's not so effective to focus on them. Mm. You know, so mm -hmm. for effectiveness reasons, you wouldn't focus on them. But for your own well-being, you would. Um, and your own comfort, you would. So you have to kind of, like balance that out and see what's most important for you i think that's what i'm doing this year <laughs> yeah yeah so this is the first christmas i'm not spending with my parents because last year it didn't go very well mm -hmm. because i at last year i wanted to do the strategy of like don't bring it up don't talk about it just sit there try to enjoy it as much as you can even though there's corpses on the table mm -hmm. Um, but then my family brought it up themselves, mm. basically. So they started mocking me really? in a subtle way, like, oh, there's dead animals on the table. Christina wouldn't like that. Yeah. And like those comments and that fired me up. And then we started a discussion. <laughs> yeah. And then like after this discussion was over, uh, they blamed me for, for starting it. Okay. Right. So yeah. this kind of, this gaslighting happens in, in my, by my yeah. parents very often. And I'm so sorry. I, I had several reasons not to want to spend Christmas with them. 
but on the second day of Christmas this year, I am spending it with my uh, with my grandma and my aunt, both of whom both of who are a bit more like understanding towards my perspective, and they agreed to let me cook a fully vegan mm -hmm. dinner for them, yes. three courses. So I'm excited for that, but yeah. I'm stepping away from my direct like close family. Yeah, I think that's. I mean, maybe teaches them a lesson you never know <laughs> you know like, yeah. like for next year i think you shouldn't yeah nobody should take that like abuse even though those people have no idea what they're doing you know you we still shouldn't shouldn't accept it because i mean it's bad enough what happens to these animals it's it's an extra step if then we are being blamed and ridiculed for trying for trying to make it better or, mm -hmm. or caring about it i think if people are fed up with the way they're being treated um, and they don't feel like bringing it up and having a fight or trying to influence them, then yeah, it's better to just withdraw and have Christmas in in an atmosphere with people who do appreciate what you're doing. And it could be family or they could be friends who are vegan or, or whatever. Yeah. And I think you found a very good solution by cooking vegan dishes for people who are open to veganism I'm very lucky with my family. My family is also, they're not vegan or vegetarian, but they're just very open yeah. and uh, supportive. And uh, we will also cook. Yeah, we have some mixed uh, meals where everybody eats what they like. Mm -hmm. I eat uh, uh, vegan um, mm -hmm. and they don't. But um, we have also always one day where everybody eats something that I can decide. So yeah. it's vegan. And then it's always an opportunity to show them, hey, it's nice. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, yeah, <laughs> thank you very much. Tobias, for being here right. with us. Um, for me, it was a very great episode, very insightful, lots of um, <laughs> information to um, digest. Mm -hmm. Thanks for having me here. Is there anything you would like to leave us with? <laughs> um, no, I just, I just would say, like, for the people, just repeat for the people who are in the position to do something, um, to not underestimate the size of the problem and also not underestimate the things that they can potentially do in their lives to speed up the finding of a solution for them. Mm -hmm. well, thank you so much. Yes, thank you. Thank you, thank you so much.